this morning. Amen. Amen. So I want to I wanna start by just kind of talking to you and asking you a question. How do you typically pack for a trip? How do you, not, not, not how does the person next to you, how do you typically pack for a trip? I can tell you how I pack. Light. I pack light. I try to see, it, can I get as much as I possibly can in the carry-on luggage so that I don't have to check luggage because now you got to pay to check luggage and I don't want to pay anybody. So I try to put as much as I can in the carry-on. If I got like a blazer, I'm trying to figure out a way I can fold a blazer up and put it in the carry-on bag. If I got two pairs of shoes, I got a, if I got two pairs of shoes that I got carried, I'm trying to figure out how I can get those two pairs of shoes in the in the, the whole nine. I'm trying to figure out how can I get as much as I can in the carry-on bag in order in order for me to not have to pay anything, and in order for me, of course, to travel light. I'm married too. I'm married to a woman that I love dearly and who's in here somewhere. She doesn't share my sentiments as it, as it pertains to packing. She doesn't quite pack the same way. Now, I'm sure there's things in there that she needs. You know, I mean, everybody, who, need, who, who, who doesn't need six pairs of shoes when you're traveling for six days, right? You know, and, and who, doesn't, who doesn't need, you know, seven extra pair or seven extra outfits, you know, when, when, when you're traveling for six days, right? And so I understand. I understand completely why she packs the way she packs, but she does tend to pack a little on the heavy side. And so typically what happens is that I have my carry-on if we're traveling for three days, and then she has her carry-on, and then she has another bag, and then she has another bag that she wants me to take with me, and that can serve as my bag, right? And so I got a carry-on, but then I got a bag that's supposed to be my bag, but it's really her bag because there's nothing but her stuff in it. And so we all pack and we all travel differently. We all figure that we have other things, that we, that we have certain essentials that we need to carry once we hit the road. And so this morning I want to talk about some essentials that you carry when you hit the road. Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, for, for the sake of our discussion this morning, at least for the beginning of it, are preparing to hit the road. And when thinking about this upcoming journey that, that Saul and Barnabas are about to embark upon, a journey in which they are taking the gospel to all, uh, taking the gospel to the rest of the world, at least their first journey, what we want to ask ourselves is how do you pack for that journey? How do you pack for the journey of taking the gospel to the world? Except this question isn't really a question about physical packing, is it? It's a question about what spiritual needs do you, what spiritual things do you need in order to, in order to pack properly for the journey of taking the gospel to the world. Now, before they're sent out, they are sent out with a few things, a few packing ingredients or packing needs. And then once they're sent out, there is another packing need that they carry along with them. And so the two things I want to talk about, the two things that you need in order to be sent out and then continue moving out is dynamic commissioning and dynamic evangelism. Dynamic commissioning and dynamic evangelism. Successful missions, successful delivery of the gospel to the world, to your city, to your neighborhood, to your school. Successful delivery of the gospel requires a dynamic Commissioning Verses 1 through 3, they highlight the early, the early group of leaders in the church at Antioch. 
verses 1 through 3. And so it, 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 maybe you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks as we've been preaching through this, and that's fine. You could always catch up by just going online or downloading the app. But Antioch, what we've noticed is that Antioch has become the center for Christian expansion and, and Christian, Christian spread. Christians that were facing persecution in Jerusalem and Judea moved to Antioch, so to speak, as a result of being pushed to Antioch. And many of them ended up sharing the gospel once they got to Antioch. And then people begin to come to Christ when, when they begin to share the gospel. Hearts begin to turn to Jesus and they begin to repent and begin to confess and believe that Jesus Christ was Lord. And a church was birthed out of there. As a matter of fact, Antioch, as we talked about it a few weeks ago, Antioch was the first place that Christians were called Christians. And now after Saul and Barnabas, they spent some time back in Jerusalem and they were, uh, during that time, they were faced with persecution from Herod. But now they have moved back to Antioch, fresh off of persecution from Herod. And now they are preparing to be launched out. Verses one, verse 1, it says this. Now there were in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manuin, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Here's what's interesting about that group of people. You have a diversity in that group of people. You have a diversity of gifting in that group of people, prophets, teachers. You have a diversity of ethnicity and culture in that group of people. Sometimes you don't pay attention to that when you read through the Bible, do you? But Simeon, who was called Niger, anybody, anybody know what Niger actually means? Black. All right, that felt a little uncomfortable. Niger means black. Simeon was dark-skinned. That's why they called him Black. I don't know if Simeon's one of those guys where you're so dark that you call blue. You know what I mean? You have friends that, like, they're dark-skinned. You, you call them black, you call them blue. And so Simeon was one of the guys. They just, just called him black. Hey, black, come here, right? He's dark. And so you got, you got Simeon, who's this dark-skinned cat. You got, you got Lucius, um, and Lucius is from Cyrene, so he's from North Africa. And so you got this dark-skinned cat who is probably from Northern Africa. You got Lucius, who is probably also from Northern Africa. And then you got Saul, who, of course, is from Tarsus. You got Barnabas, who is from the island of Cyprus, the, the island that they're about to go to. And then you got Manuin, who was the, the, the most likely, likely he was from Judea. But, and the reason he was from, you, you think he was from Judea is, is because he was connected to one of the kings, one of the rulers there, Herod, the Tetrarch, the one that, the one that actually cut John the Baptist's head off, or ordered it at least. And so you got this diversity of gifting, prophets, teachers, you got this diversity of ethnicity and culture, but then you also have this diversity of class and influence because, because the brother, the, the Manuin, the brother who was with Herod, Obviously, he has some clout to be in the same, to have friendship with a ruler, right? 
So he grew up with this ruler. He had influence. Paul comes from um, this academic uh, arena. So he's very scholastic and very scholarly and has influence. So you got these two cats that have influence. You got these other two cats from North Africa. uh, And then you got this other guy who's from, uh, from the islands. And they all are in Antioch. And they all are serving as leaders in this church. In order to reach the nations, folks, you should have a church aspiring and actively working to visually reflect the nations. The nations are tremendously diverse, but not just in color, not just in class, not just in culture, but even in ways that, 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 that you get their attention. And the church that, that, that should be built should reflect, the, to the best of our ability, a commitment to reach those people through the people we already have, meaning that there should, we should look like the communities that we're trying to reach. Does that make sense? If our community has white and black people interspersed into it, then we should be aspiring and looking or aspiring to at least reflect that in our own churches, in our own circles, in our staff, and in our leadership. I was with a group of church planners recently, and, and we were evaluating different elements of church planning. And one of the elements that we evaluated was, the, uh, was, was reporting back to people that are partnering with you. And the most popular way that you report back to people that are um, partnering with you is through monthly newsletters. And so we were looking at these monthly newsletters and kind of critiquing them and saying where they could improve and where we, where we thought they were strong, where we thought they were weak. And as we were looking at these monthly newsletters, there was one monthly newsletter where it had this, this individual who was homeless on the front page of it. And, and, and it had one of those really, 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 you know, bad-looking homeless pictures where the brother just looks, you know, just completely worn down, completely beat up by life. And, it, you know, and, and it, had, it had the picture, and then it had like a headline about, you know, reaching, you know, reaching, uh, you know, the unreachable, so to speak, Right? And as we were looking at that, one, one, one of us actually commented on the picture and said, man, I, I just don't think that's a good picture for us to be sending out to partners. Because that man has dignity, and we should make sure that when we capture pictures that, that the pictures capture the dignity of the people, even in their condition, even if they're homeless. There still should be a picture of dignity in their homelessness, right? And, there, and, and all of us were standing around, and, and, and many people commented and said, man, I've never even thought about it. never even looked at it that way. See, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the opportunity and the privilege that comes when you bring people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different classes. When you surround leadership, when you surround your church with people that don't all have the same experiences. See, sometimes we can advance the mission of God and sometimes we can exercise wisdom that we wouldn't have otherwise seen because we all are alike. Does that make sense? And so here is this group that aren't alike. And together they are deciding what is it that we need to do in order to advance the mission of God. And so you look at verse 2 and verse 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What else is involved in dynamic commissioning? Commissioning means authority to send, right? They are authorizing someone to go in their name. So what else is involved in commissioning? We talked about this diverse, dynamic group of believers, but also a dependency on the Spirit to actually do the work, a dependency on God to do the work. You see, the leaders, they worshiped, they fasted, they prayed, and then the Spirit intervenes and says, I want you to send Saul 
and I want you to send Barnabas. See, they could have prioritized strategy. They could have prioritized planning. They could have said, these are the most important things. Did we get our plans right? Did we get our strategies right before we send our people? But they don't prioritize that, do they? They prioritize worship. They prioritize prayer. They prioritize fasting, which means stay, uh, re- uh, rejecting the delicacies, rejecting food for a season, or rejecting other things that you take delight in for a season to just depend on God and seek God's face. Verse 2 says that they were fasting and praying and worshiping, and then the Spirit intervened and instructed them and told them who to send. And then after they fasted and prayed some more, then they laid their hands on those, on those two men that the Spirit told them to send, and then they sent them. See, sometimes the way we think about church programs and church missions and church outreach, whether it be personal evangelism, whether it be small group outreach, or whether it be our complete church planning outreach strategies, sometimes they take on practical I, uh, practical methods. Sometimes they take on methods that, that, that have a greater dependency on us than they do the actual spirit who sends us. Sometimes we devise plans, good plans, but with no spirit. Sometimes we deploy great schemes, but with no outcry to God to help us. Sometimes we select leaders to fulfill our, our mandates in the church, but our selection process looks more like corporate America than anything spiritual. Sometimes we're big on practical, but little on prayerful. Whenever we are doing anything for God, we must feed it with prayer. Whenever I'm getting ready to go share the gospel with a a friend of mine, I need to feed that moment with prayer. Whenever I'm getting ready to even invite a friend of mine to church, I need to be preparing my heart and asking the Lord to intervene as I speak to him about that friend. See, the exact opposite is true of these these group of men. They're not planning first, they're praying first. It's not that they don't plan at all. I'm sure they plan. But the emphasis is on prayer. In other words, they aren't simply planning, but first they are planning to pray. We must worship, pray, and fast like God's spirit is the one that's sending us and going with us. And not like we're going alone. How dependent are you right now on the Spirit to empower your going? How dependent are you right now on the Spirit to empower you when you go and witness and share Jesus with somebody or invite somebody to church? How dependent are you right now on the Spirit to take the gospel to your family and to your friends? Are you praying for God to help you as you go and do it? Are you praying for God to to strengthen you as you go and do it? Are you praying for God to move on somebody's heart as you go and you speak to them? That's one thread that we see running throughout this text is how utterly dependent this group of people are on God's spirit to be the one that moves on their behalf. What else should we look for? We see dynamic commissioning, but also I said another ingredient when you're traveling with the gospel is dynamic evangelism. Missions requires the actual sharing and declaring of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be successful missions. And so in verse 4 it says, being sent out by the Spirit, they went to Seleucia. 
And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they prayed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. Barnabas and Saul travel to the coast. And then from the coast, they take a boat and they sail to the island of Cyprus. And then once they get to Cyprus, this is Barnabas' home island, by the way. Once they get there, then they start in Salamis and they preach their way through the island. They preach their way through the island. This is what you have to do in order to actually take the gospel to the nations, is that you actually have to share it. Does that make sense? They start in the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, the place where Judaism is practiced, and of course, and of course, the, the you know the com the commentaries and the theologians tell you that the reason that they start there is because they they want to maintain that the gospel first goes to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, in light of the covenant promises of God regarding Israel being His covenant people. And so they start with the Jews, and they share the gospel there. But also, not just for a spiritual reason, but also for for a practical reason, they go to the synagogue first because those are the people that are familiar with the Old Testament God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they go there and they say, hey, this is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Jesus Christ is that fulfillment. And so the Gentiles that, that show up at the synagogue, as well as the Jews that are there at the synagogue, it rings bells immediately for them. So they're able to connect easier with them. So that's where they start. And then once they start there, they move out into the city. And so that's what they did. They go from place to place on this island, starting in the synagogues and sharing the gospel, and they go through the entire island doing so. See, mission has no chance of being successful without the preaching and sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people that you're trying to reach. Paul says as much in, in Acts, in, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, when he says, how can they call on someone whom they have not believed? And how are they, how are they to believe in him, in, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul says people can't believe if they don't hear. And people can't hear unless someone is preaching. And someone can't preach unless someone is sending. And so in order for missions to be successful, we have to go. But when we go, we have to speak. And when we speak, by God's grace and by, by his spirit, someone hears. And when someone hears, they believe. So the word of God is going forth throughout this entire island. And as it is going forth, what we find is that there are a certain set of truths that take place around evangelism that we should all pay attention to. A pastor by the name of Tony Morita points out that these truths uh, are, are truths that apply to pretty much any effort of evangelism that you do. And that's, and that's these three truths. When you are sharing the gospel, simple truths, there are some folks who will be open to hear the gospel, there are some folks that will oppose the gospel, and there are some folks who will embrace the gospel. Simple truths. Some folks open to hear it, some folks will uh, oppose it, some folks will actually embrace it and receive it. This is what you should expect in every single missionary work that you go on. You shouldn't be shocked when people oppose it. You should be like, okay, Jesus said, you know, I mean, hey, Jesus said the road is narrow. There's going to be some people that's not feeling this. All right, God, continue to, continue to do work in their life and open their heart to receive it, right? 
You shouldn't be shocked when some people receive it. Because the Bible also says that one plants, one waters, but God gives increase. So, Lord, you're giving increase here in this moment. So let's talk about the people that are open to hear. When you look at verse 6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain uh, magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Apparently, Barnabas and Saul's preaching is creating a buzz on the island. Because now they're being sought after by the governing official of the region, who apparently receives word about the buzz that is being, that, that's surrounding Barnabas and Saul. And he wants to learn more about it. So he's asking them to come and to talk to him about this. See, sometimes people will be willing to listen to your gospel, and you won't even have to put any work in to have them hear it. They will come looking for you sometimes. There's no formula to how this works, right? There's, there's sometimes the open heart will, will be, uh, come from the person with no influence, um, no social capital, no economic power, not a whole lot of intelligence or intellect, not very smart. But sometimes the open heart will come from a person with a lot of influence and a lot of social capital and a lot of intelligence and a lot of economic power. And Barnabas and Saul seem to have been summoned by a man in this text who fits the latter profile. Very influential, obviously prominent, probably has economic power, and the Bible even tells us itself that he was an intelligent man. They've been summoned by a man who, who has means, which is why he can literally summon them to come. The gospel carries the power to, to hit anybody in any walk of life, even people in the highest of offices, right? And this should encourage you in, in two ways, right? One way it should encourage you is that you can just keep speaking the truth of Jesus Christ crucified because you never know who's listening or who will end up wanting to hear based on what somebody else tells them they heard from you. Does that make sense? I've been in weddings. I've been at funerals. I've been at all sorts of different events where I've shared the gospel in one place or another, and I've had people come to me later and say, man, I heard you speak at this funeral once, man, and it, and man, it just really pointed me to Jesus. So I heard you speak at this wedding, and I never really thought about marriage like that. It just gave me a deeper understanding of Christ. And I didn't, I didn't even know they were there, right? And so the encouragement is just to keep speaking because you never know who's listening. Does that make sense? But there's also an encouragement to keep living out the gospel example in front of people because you never know who's looking. Does that make sense? You never know who's looking and gaining their impressions of what it means to be a Christian from you. Does that make sense? They could be watching you. You guys know I always talk about the restaurant. The, the server could be watching you. You get out of church. You got your church clothes on. You got your church gear on. Or you're talking about, man, hey, man, I'm so tired of Pastor B talking about this uh this axe, man, I wish he'd get in the revelations or something, right? And so they're like, oh, they, oh, he go to ch oh, they go to church, right? And so they're thinking about it. They're taking mental notes about you going to church. And then your food comes out a little cold, a little undercooked. 
You ask for medium well. They send medium. I ain't asked for this. Oh, okay. We'll take it back, ma'am. Take it back, sir. But what are they doing? Take your mental notes. Oh, this is how Christians act, huh? Drink ain't filled. Uh, can we get somebody over here so I can fill my drink? Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll fill your drink. What else are we doing? Taking mental notes. That's how Christians act, huh? Then after you done ran that person to death, slap that dollar on the table. You already know the standard is 18%. You give them five. They getting paid. They don't need my tips. They already getting paid. Mental notes. So what have you told them about the God you serve as you left church today to go get some lunch? You never know who's listening, but you never know who's watching. And so this man apparently got the buzz that in town is a group of men that are the real deal, and we need to get them in here so they can talk to us. So he was open to receive. But then there were some folks who were opposing the gospel, right? Because it says in verse 8 that Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now this particular opposer, his name is Bar-Jesus, uh, uh, otherwise known as Elymas, and he happens to be a magician, but he's not a David Copperfield, Penn and Teller, Harry Houdini type of magician. He's not an illusionist, right? He's, he's, more, he's more of like a, somebody who's dipping, dipping and dabbling in dark arts. Luke calls him a false prophet in verse 6. This is a kind of soothsayer type of guy who claims to be speaking on behalf of the dead. And, and, and one of the things about Roman officials is that they kept these kind of folks close to them back in the day. Because they thought that these folks gave them some sort of power to be able to influence outcomes. Or they looked to them and they said, hey, what's going to happen if we go to war? What's going to happen if we go to battle? Or what's going to happen if I make this decision? And so these guys carried a lot of influence with Roman officials. Verse 7 tells us that this man, this magician, was with the governing official. He had sway. And as a result, this man would have had much favor with this governing official, and thus he would have had a lot to lose if someone were to expose his inferior power. And this is most likely what leads to his opposition. See, typically when we think of opposition in the gospel, we think in terms of term, we think solely in terms of unbelief. We say, if somebody believes, they'll embrace the gospel. If somebody doesn't believe, they're not going to embrace the gospel. But see, belief manifests itself in different ways, and unbelief manifests itself in different ways. Some ways that it manifests itself is pride. Other ways that it manifests itself is idolatry, a desire and a dependency on other things besides God, like possessions or like, or like money or like a position or like status. See, oftentimes we see the Jewish leaders in the New Testament reject Jesus not because he didn't show himself to be exactly who he said he was. A lot of times they reject him because he is a threat to them. He's a threat to their status. He's a threat to their position. He's a threat to their power. 
Remember the story of the rich young ruler. He doesn't reject Jesus because he doesn't believe who he's, um, that he is who he said he is. He rejects him because Jesus said, if you really want to have riches in heaven, go and sell everything and, you'll, and come and follow me. You'll have riches in heaven. He says, well, no, 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 I can't do that because I love my wealth too much for that. See, maybe some of you in, in here this morning, you may be opposing the gospel, and, and, and it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you don't intellectually believe that Jesus Christ lived a life, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for you. Maybe you believe that. Maybe you acknowledge that. But why aren't you following him? The question would then come. Maybe it's because you, you carry a fear of missing out on something. Right? What do I have to lose if I accept Jesus? I love this life that I'm in. You mean to tell me I got to give this up? Or maybe, maybe it's, it's the, the fear of losing status. Maybe it's the fear of losing privilege or losing possessions. Maybe it's the fear of losing control over your life. You like being able to do whatever it is you want to do. And now God is saying, no, you come and do what I want you to do. And you say, well, I don't want to do that. I believe, I, believe that you, I believe that you die, but I just don't want to do that. Maybe your pride has fooled you into thinking that you really do what is best for you. And you really do what will ultimately bring you maximum joy. I want to plead with you to not buy into your own hype story. Don't buy your own hype. You think you know what you need, but only God knows. You think you're losing something if you come to him, but you're only gaining you think someone's trying to rob you of joy, but in Christ, you will only receive joy. I want to plead with you to, to humble yourself before this God and embrace this God, truly embrace this God as Lord and truly embrace this God as Savior while you still have time, as the old song says. This is the lesson that Elymas is, 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 is not grasping at this point, and it cost him dearly when you look at verse 9 and 11. It says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unright or all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Notice that now the shift happens where we stop calling him Saul, and we start calling him Paul from henceforth. Some people said that it was a name change as a result of his life changing, but that's not the case. His life changed several chapters ago. So which, what happens? Why do we start calling Paul instead of Saul now? Well, because this is the signature moment in which really we see the whole story in that shift from the focus in Jerusalem, in Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and Saul, which we now call Paul, is the man going to the Gentiles. And so Luke makes a subtle shift from his Jewish name, Saul, to his Roman name, Gentile name, Paul. Why? Because he's going to reach the Gentile people from henceforth in the scriptures. Does that make sense? Now let's just talk about what he just said to this, to this dude, right? Because, I mean, I don't know. Do you, I, don't, I mean, I don't think any of you guys go around saying this kind of stuff to people that reject Jesus, right? 
So, and so let's just talk a little bit about this. Maybe, maybe, maybe you want to, right? Maybe you want to say, you son of the devil, right? Maybe you want to get at him like that, but I don't think many of you do that. So, so let's just talk a little bit about it. How can, how can, how can Paul say this? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, the opposer, the one that he's opposing is actually evil. He's bona fide evil. Listen to the, listen to the language that Saul uses. Son of Jesus, that's, that's what Bar-Jesus' name means, son of Jesus. He says, no, nah, you ain't the son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil. You're doing the devil's bidding, you're doing the devil's work, operating in all of this craziness that you're in. But then he goes a step further, and he says, enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit, full of all villainy. In other words, this dude is a huckster. He's a trickster. He's playing these people. Are you tracking? And so Saul, Paul, is not taking too kindly to the reality that this guy is presenting himself to be something that he knows he's not, and he's capitalizing off of it. Saul is speaking to the huckster in harsh terms, but also his response is spirit-driven. The Bible says that he was filled with the spirit when he spoke those harsh words to him. See, I don't think many of us really deal with whether or not we're operating in the spirit when we speak, right? If we be honest with ourselves, some of us just ain't ready for that. Some of us, if we said that, it would, it would, be, it would be more bitterness and anger for being showed up, right? Because this guy says something to you. You ain't going to say that to me, you son of the devil. And then we say, well, you know, the spirit told me, said, nah, you know, just a little angry. Probably a little, a little bitter because he showed you up. Maybe it was pride or maybe it was arrogance for thinking that you're smarter than that person. You know, I see a lot of people harshly speaking to people, and it's just filled with pride. It's not, it has nothing to do with being filled with the Spirit. It's just filled with pride. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. That's why I'm saying the things that I'm saying to you. Sometimes it's unforgiveness or resentment for a harsh word that may have hurt us. And we take that harsh word and we take that resentment and we try to use it in a spiritual way on somebody. Does that make sense? See, we can all easily take all of our unchecked sinful emotions and then wrap them up in some spirit stuff, in some churchy stuff, and then try to go and attack and lash out at people and say that we're doing it for Jesus. But you got to check yourself on that. You got to really ask yourself, what am I speaking for? Who am, I, who am I representing? Who am I trying to point this person to? And Paul had a good grasp of that. But then ultimately, it's because this guy is opposing the gospel and Saul will have none of it. This guy's trying to stop somebody who wants to hear and who wants to receive. Sergius Paulus actually wants to receive. But Elemus is worried about his status being in jeopardy if he receives. And so he's doing everything to stop him. And Saul won't have any of it. Listen to what he says. He literally tells the man, for this, you're going to be blind. The hand of the Lord of judgment is going to be upon you. What's interesting about this judgment that's pronounced on him is that it's the same exact judgment that God, in, temper, in a temporary moment of capturing Saul's attention, releases on Saul. Remember, when Saul's on the road to Damascus, he sees a light, and what happens? He's immediately blinded. And once he's blinded, he hears God's voice. Saul, Saul, why art thou persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? I'm not persecuting. Who, who are you? Who, I'm not persecuting you. Yes, you are. You're persecuting me. Jesus, because you're persecuting my people. 
He goes blind and he's led by men to the city. He ultimately receives sight back again, doesn't he? And so this is the judgment that this man receives. Bar-Jesus receives the same judgment that Saul was given. The difference is that Saul, Saul's moment of blindness leads to what? Spiritual sight and awakening. His physical blindness leads to spiritual awakening and sight. But this man's physical blindness, Bar-Jesus, does nothing for him, at least, at, least, at least from what we can tell in this text. But something does happen. There's a slightly different uh, outcome. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he, saw what had heard, what, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This moment of physical blindness doesn't open the magician's eyes, but it opens the official's eyes. But what does it open his eyes to? It says... He was amazed, for he was amazed or astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Don't miss that part. Because it's not just opening your eyes and saying, man, that was a really, really great, that was some power right there that God put on display. But what was he doing it for? To open the man's heart to respond to the gospel. That's really what changed the heart, right? And so God will use different things. God will use different experiences in our lives to capture our attention so that we might be ready one day when somebody comes along and preaches the gospel to us. Or so that our heart might be uh, awakened to say, man, I remember when B was telling me about Jesus a couple of weeks ago. It might be time that I go ahead and turn back to him. It might be time that I call him up and ask him a few more questions about that. Are you tracking with that? So God uses this blindness, but what does he use for you? Maybe he uses a friend's death to wake you up. Maybe he uses a near-fatal car accident to open your eyes to see. Maybe he uses heartbreak, breakup of a, uh, of a girlfriend, fiance, whatever. Maybe he uses a job, struggles on the job. And, and while he's doing that with you, we that are speaking to you, we just got to rest and trust God, don't we? We got to speak the truth and trust that behind the scenes, God is doing what he needs to do with the people that we are sharing his gospel with. Because we don't know what he's doing, right? His words have power, but we also don't know what he's doing behind the scenes with those words. And so that's where the spirit comes in. So... Paul speaks the words to this man, shares the gospel with this man, but then the spirit comes in power, temporarily blinds this man who he was looking to for sight. Don't miss that. Because he was looking to him saying, hey, what's going to happen? Tell me what's going to happen in this, if I make this decision. Tell me what's going to happen if I make that decision. And God says, that dude don't see like you think he do. Right? No, you need to look to me. He doesn't see like you think he does. And all of a sudden, his attention is awakened. He says, oh, wait a second, I need to listen to you then. What do you have to say? And that's what God is doing all over and all around us sometimes, if we're just willing to share. So that when it happens, they know who to turn to. They know who to look to. Amen? This is what we take when we go, when we go on mission. When you go to your neighborhood, when you go to your school, this is what you take. You take the commission that God has given you to go by his spirit 
And he's given that commission to every single one of you that are believers to go wherever it is throughout this city, go. But then when you go, you take his gospel and you share it and you speak it and you trust that whatever you share and whatever you speak, he backs it up with the Spirit's power. Amen.